Being quarantined in our homes, away from many, if not all, of our loved ones, is not a thing to celebrate. But it does afford us, despite real fears and discomfort, a great deal of time for meditation and reflection. Hopefully, God and Other Delicacies can be one of the ways in which you find a sliver of optimism in your day and the welcome warmth of connecting deeply with someone you've just met for the first time. Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Agosto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Bobber Pirzada to the show. Bobber is a professional actor and writer of both screen and stage. His journey is a complex one. It finds him bouncing between his birth country of Pakistan and England before ultimately moving to Los Angeles to study acting at USC. It was within this group of USC actors and artists that I was introduced to Bobber, and it was alongside Eric Christian Olsen, while training with Bobber to get buffed for fired up streaking scenes, that we all became friends. In fact, Bobber and Eric have become writing partners, and they co-wrote and acted together in the 250th episode of NCIS Los Angeles. Bobber has acted in a number of stage productions in and around LA, including his gorgeous portrayal of The Elephant Man in a production I and other friends helped produce. He also has multiple projects in the works with Eric, which I need to hear more about. And finally, this isn't very important, but we used to play a bunch of Halo together. Welcome to the show, Bobber! Nikki, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a great pleasure to get to be on the show and to get to talk to you. I haven't talked to you in ages. And I wanted to touch on this group of friends we've had and how we know each other. And it's very much, it's been more than camaraderie. It's been like a coming of age. It's been like a stand by me. We were there for each other through relationships, through career questions, through Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> through putting up each other's shows and cheering each other on and everybody watching each other grow up. And one of the most delightful parts of it, which you've rekindled in this show, is I remember so clearly so many moments of sitting with you and our other friends and sharing ideas, sharing philosophies, extrapolating the moment puzzling out life as young people do. And it was a really precious and delightful time, I think, for me and for everybody else. Yeah, man. I've mentioned on the show before that there's this USC crop of friends that have been really important to me, these actors and artists that have been really important to me. And I didn't go to USC, but I met you all through Patrick Adams, who I worked with on a pilot yeah. once a long, long time ago. I mean, very early in my career and in his career. And and through him, met all of you, and I've had so many of you on the show now. I love hearing where you guys are at. I'm stoked to hear where you're at, Bobber. Thank you, man. I think it's more important, this show in particular, beyond just checking in, is like there's few things out there right now, the world in so many ways and so many facets from, you know, religion to sports events to God knows what is polarized. And there are very few things left that are not diatribes mm. that are a real discussion of ideas and thoughts and philosophy and that's something I treasured with you in particular always and to have you do in this show and you know examining and seeing and being open to everybody's interpretation of things as we all fumble through life that's a special and meaningful thing right now mm, thanks a lot Barbara that's very sweet I love it man I love I love being connected in this way with people I love hearing 
about how other people are doing it and how they see it. And, and in turn, I, I grow, you know, it's, it's yeah. ultimately the show is very selfish. <laughs> I just like, I like <laughs> hearing and growing, you know, I like hearing and growing and I love talking to people who have really interesting things to say about the questions that they're living. And yeah, man, I appreciate that though a lot, Bobber. Thank you. Thank you, man. I want to talk just briefly about some of the projects you're yeah. working on. The Buddha project is a very cool one that this has been in development for a long time. What is it in you? And this might just start the show, frankly, uh, but what is it in you that focuses on, this is a television series, right? It's conceived as a series about mm -hmm. Buddha. Is it a series about the reworking of Beowulf? Is that a series or is that like that a... That too is a series. And both of them and the projects I'm mostly interested in, they'll bleed into a lot of what the show is about is, per the expression of history is written by the victors. What they don't normally say is, all the other points of view of history were also written. They weren't as broadly publicized. And that's the glorious part about studying any kind of evolution in history is, is the different multiple points of view. So you get out of these stories of the chosen one or the blessed one or this person with a destiny. And you really see a human fumbling and struggling and all the other political, socioeconomic things that influence the time and place, it's it's kind of the beauty of why a Game of Thrones works. It makes the fantastical real and relatable immediately. And that's what you're doing with the Buddha? Yes. It doesn't even deal with his enlightenment. It's when he's still a military general. He's a warrior. and It deals a lot with the breaking of a man. The show is a man falling to rock bottom where he then has to search for, this isn't working. The cycle of violence isn't working. I don't even think I knew before you and I talked about this when you were first researching this right. that the person that would become Buddha was a military officer. Yeah, it was. I mean, that's that's the thing is like in what is now India at the time, there's no written history. Everything was told orally and consequently poetically. So you get all the poetic versions of, you know, he was born and his lotus flower sprung up and the chosen one and blah, blah, blah. And you don't. Eric and I were researching it, had to zero down on what was actually going on. It turns out his, uh, Siddhartha's father is a smaller warrior tribe in between two warring kingdoms. And he, the prophecy of his firstborn son is that he's going to be either a healer or a great warrior. His dad sets him on the path of the warrior. So when we meet him, you know, in his 30s, he's effectively a sociopath. <laughs> he's a weapon on the field. And, and then the show becomes, he gains his wisdom and what later become his lessons, not through being the chosen one, not through a higher intellect or a connection with God, but through heartbreak, failure, loss, all the knocks that all of us take, his only defining attribute is he keeps getting back up. Hmm. And he becomes a guy who puts the pieces together. And then it's also, there's, there's a joy in sort of the irreverence of breaking down those very flowery stories. There's one of my favorite examples of points of view on history too is, it's the most celebrated battle of all time. It's Thermopylae. It's the hot gates, the 300 Spartans versus an army of million Persians. And mm -hmm. I'm in no way in this on the Persian side for you know, a horrific empire for terrible things. But, you know, we made movies and books and 
comic books and, and all these things about the 300 Spartans' glorious death, they held the hot gates for three days against these million Persians. The other side of history goes, yeah, we went there, we waited three days, we killed all of them, beheaded their king and took over Greece anyway. Yeah, right. Right. And that's and that's like, oh yeah, that also happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So I do like to get into these tales and histories and see what the other angles were just to make a, a human story out of it. Oh, that's good, Bobber. Now tell me about Beowulf and and then the Mary Shelley, you're writing a play? Yeah, man, I've been deeply, deeply post elephant man, very, very into all the physical work and then Start reading uh, more and more Frankenstein because a play I wanted to work on. But then the more interesting part became Frankenstein is it's one of the seminal works for men in terms of this coming of age, father, son, creator, created, man, God. And then you see those roles flipped. One of the first things the movies did was they took away the creature's voice. And that was his most dangerous tool, is his ability for assimilation. And he sort of mirrors the elephant man being this singular and grotesque character. But unlike the elephant man, he doesn't find the high road. He says, I'm not loved, and therefore I'm going to destroy and burn this world down. And his acts become acts of violence. And eventually he becomes the father. You track this, the journey of a young man into taking, taking that role. And then you realize the person who wrote this is a young woman in, in the 17th century, surrounded by Percy Bysshe, he's a husband and Lord Byron, these very outspoken men having many, many relationships and and this very male-dominated thing all around her. And meanwhile, she quietly she quietly writes this, this seminal piece of literature. And the play is, it's a bit fantastical. It's sort of about her being Victor Frankenstein. Mm. It's her creating the creature as an extension of her, her silenced voice. And she makes this thing that'll burn down the world of men that she's surrounded with. These people who are using her, cheating on her, this and that, the other. And talking about beautiful poetry at the same time, she makes this irreverent, grotesque creature and teaches him how to destroy. Oh, man. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's a cool little, it's a cool little idea. Oh, sounds great, Bobber. Thanks, man. It's fun. Well, hot damn. You let me know when it's ready, right? Oh, yeah. No, you're playing the creature. Oh, cool. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. All right. Well, we got you recorded, buddy. Bobber, let's... This is great. We're right in the thick of it. It doesn't surprise me. But listen, I got to ask you about breakfast. For those of you that can't see Bobber, he's a chiseled man. Guy's always working out, looking great. So what are you eating that's making your body look so great, which I'm sure it is right now? Nikki, I've been doing this, I've been doing this intermittent fasting bit where it used to be, as you know all about, like you, you eat every three hours and protein every three hours and, and basically going for this almost 16-hour chunk, uh, 16 to 18 hours, you don't eat, and then your body goes into ketosis, and then uh, you start building all these immune things, and, and God knows when your first meal is that after your workout or right around lunchtime. And the whole idea is you start it right with an avocado or lemon or something green and it changes your palate. But I was so 
hungry and saying, yeah, I, I made up spaghetti bolognese at 12 and, yeah, and had a Mexican Coca-Cola and I'm on the verge of passing out. <laughs> I ate the heaviest, baddest heart attack meal I could think of before this show. And, and I don't know what to do in this over. <laughs> metabolism is completely crashed. Oh, Bobber, that's so funny, man. That's great. That's great. Well, listen, stay with me, brother. What we're going to do is we're going to get you into that beautiful meditative space, that dreamlike space in between sleeping and waking. And we're just <laughs> going to get into the deepest recesses of your mind right now, all right? So so just let yourself I'm, go there. I'm slipping right in. Fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Bobber, that's fantastic. So let's do it. Let's jump off from there. How and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? So it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's been with me always, and it's been more than, more than a fascination. It's been a searching, and the kickoff was when I we went back to Pakistan, and to this day, much to the chagrin of my mother, I've been called the godless or the faithless. And that's because, so I moved, we moved to London when I was, uh, when I was about a year old and sister is directly younger than me, had just been born. We moved to London and from Pakistan. I, I'm sorry, I have to stop you. Did your mother refer to you as the godless or the faithless? Is that what you said? No, people in other family members and definitely all the kids in school and stuff in Pakistan did. Okay, okay, good, good, good. I'm interested. I just and had to know right out of the gate. Is this, whoa. Because we were... The only Pakistani family I knew in England, my parents were, religion wasn't part of the house. So both of them had a faith. They'd have these dinner parties as friends discussing arts and music and literature and really pushed me and my sisters to do, look at history and sciences. And we'd spend all our time in the museum and arts. And it was a really idyllic kind of childhood in terms of in terms of the the intake of expanding your curiosity. Carl Sagan was immediately one of my heroes. And my mom had a very strong faith, though she didn't hit us over the head with it. She's brought up Muslim and all, but didn't do the any of the hijab or praying five times a day. But it was a very sweet thing because I saw her, when she did pray, it was for... It was good thoughts for the people she loved and cared about. That was a lovely thing. But conversely, I didn't have a faith. And more than that, I had a knee-jerk reaction to the idea that there's a judgmental, capricious God dictating your fates and your actions and very, very interested in all the stories from the Bible and the Torah and the Quran and but a lot of the times, God's written like a, a really terrible girlfriend. Uh, oh, yeah, you love me? Prove it. Kill your kid. Mm -hmm. That's uh, cuckoo falls. <laughs> and so I was like deeply interested in why other people would so easily succumb to faith. And the idea that, that even as a kid was repugnant to me was somebody or anybody would tell a young child that you're a sinner and you have to do X, Y, Z to attain grace. Mm. And that's the whole idea, which much later on in my life, it really took to be one of the downfalls of the modern age is the idea that you have to suffer to attain because then it's an idea of guilt and shame. And when we were in England, it was, it was much easier for me to 
put that stuff aside, study it, but also was like deeply into science and cosmology and wanted to be an astrophysicist at one point. And, mm. But then at about 12 years old, they had a housing crash there like that we had in 2008 over here. My mom was a at the time successful landlady and lost everything. Oh, and yeah. parents decided to go back to Pakistan. So we'd go back to Pakistan and then didn't tell me we were going to stay there and said we were going for a summer vacation. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. When they were like, no, we're going to stay here with the rest of the family and make a go of it. Slightly lost. It reacted quite poorly. Unlike my sisters, who kind of enjoyed it. But then as we got into schools and stuff, the religion there, it really permeates everything in a daily basis with the praying five times a day and almost in a more archaic way. Islam is 700 years younger than Christianity. And it's it's about exactly where Christianity was 700 years ago. It's right. the same model moving forward. And as we get into schools and we're admitted in schools, there's a class every day called Islamia where they teach you a very biased history of Islam and, and the Quran and the Prophet and the Caliphs and all. And I just, I just wasn't having it because it was taken as, this is fact and this is it. And I really, really, really poke at it and push boundaries and say, do you really believe this? I, I don't think these things happen because one of the stories I remember quite clearly it was being taught as a story of redemption. And four caliphs followed the prophet as leaders of the religion. And the fourth one, Omar, he had three daughters. And when his daughter was born, by the time she becomes a toddler, he was livid that he hadn't had a son. He'd like walk his daughter out and bury her alive. Oh. And he did it three times. And then the fourth one, he's burying the girl. And as her little hand lets go of his finger she runs out of air it finally hits him that what he can't do this anymore and his heart breaks and he'll never harm another woman again and they taught that in class like it's some wonderful revelation it's like are you kidding mm -hmm. <laughs> this man's been burying his daughter for the last <laughs> eight years what are you doing and it was that sort of sense of the atrocities in the name of this outweighing what you say the benefits are by leaps and bounds. So something that grabs me immediately. First of all, where are you? Where do you fall in your age order with your sisters? I'm the oldest, and I have a sister who's a year younger than me. And then my kid sister is 12 years younger. So even the sister that is, I didn't know there was that much disparity between the youngest, but the one that's right below you, she was born in England. She was born, we left right after she was born. So was there any leaving of Pakistan partly because of the religious situation in Pakistan at the time? What brought them to England to begin with? And then tie this into the fact that clearly as free-thinking individualistic artists that they were or are, I mean, there must have been some sense of hypocrisy to some extent that you felt as they brought you back into such a religious culture. Absolutely. My father had been quite a successful actor in England throughout his youth. I see. Um, and then he had gone back to Pakistan when his father, a playwright, Rafi Peter, had passed away. He, he'd gone back and that's where he met my mom. They got married, had me and my sister, and then we moved back to England. And it's assumed dad 
you know, will continue his career over there. Mm-hmm. That's where he had had his success in life and all that. In answer to your question, yes, when when we'd had that upbringing and seen the model of how they were living their life to come back to this country that is suddenly a much narrower, stricter view of, you know, not just knowledge, but wisdom. That made me extraordinarily angry. Like I said, reacted very poorly in some cases violently and kept getting expelled from school because I pushed pushed those questions because it would be, this isn't a place for learning. This is a place for diatribes and brainwashing. Mm. And I know the fact that, you know, you're not telling the whole story because there's more you look at any other country's history or blog of history and they'll tell you a completely different story. So there was a lot of anger there, but one of the things that stood out to me sort of as as getting out of just being so agitated all the time and found finally a group of friends and musicians and artists and wanted to do some artistic endeavors together. What stood out to me is the faith that people had that I didn't have and I couldn't find. A friend to me had said at one point, like I I was browbeating him with facts. And he very simply said, I just want to close my eyes and believe. And it was a simple, like, I was like, my God, this guy's finding solace and I'm doing everything I can to eviscerate his reality. That is beautiful. And that is going to be where we're going to take our first break. And we will be right back with this story in a couple minutes. Hey there, if you're one of the fans listening to the show right now on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it if you took a second to just scroll to the bottom, hit five stars on the ratings, wrote a one to two sentence review. It really helps the show find new listeners. And it means a lot to me because I love getting your feedback. Thanks. All right, everybody, we're back with Bobber. Bobber, you were talking about where your questioning, the fire of your questioning was meeting some people that you really cared about around you and their need and joy in their faith. What does that do to you and, and how does that change your arc or your journey? What it did, I think, most, and this is the time when they're calling me Bobber the Godless. Anyway. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have that transformation into compassion, but I felt bad about it. What it was a springboard for is, and this goes into all the projects I was working on, is I wanted to know the history of God. And I started studying voraciously the history of Islam, Christianity, Judaism, and all the facets of it and all the what led to what. And the trouble is, like, especially with the, with the three main monotheistic religions is the more you study, the more it's a paper tiger. Like you get back into the Egyptian religion and Horus, son of Ra and sun god and born on the 25th of December, executed in the spring, resurrected three days later. And mm. it's, nobody notices, mm. <laughs> you know, story to story to story. And it really began to irk me how, like, one of the big templates of these three religions was, and particularly Islam and Christianity, was the 
eradication of places of knowledge and the execution persecution of of women and calling them witches and burning them at the stakes who are herbalists, healers, teachers, anything they couldn't control. It's an insidious spread that begins to take hold of these things. And then the stuff I found more kinship with was some of the oldest stuff, some of the Norse religions where, and I realized there was a big shift in that with the polytheistic gods where there was a value system shift in all these places, even like Greece and, you know, all the Scandinavian countries where, where you had these religions most prominent, they were city-states. They never went for empires. They never went for world domination because their view of the gods was not humility and shame. It was to be as great as the gods, to excel. And, you know, the whole thing about Odin, he has one eye because he gives his eye for wisdom. Again, that's wisdom, not knowledge. It's not just the knowing of a text. That's the owning of uh, knowledge through experience. That's why the Vikings were seekers and searchers. And that, to me, really spoke volumes about, you know, what I wanted to be part of, but still didn't feel any kind of connection to, to faith or God, who is more, you know, accumulation of knowledge, facts, and and maybe browbeating people into uh, saying, so why are you taking part in this ridiculous ritual? And ritual to me at this time was anathema. It was uh, people going to prayer five times a day or what have you. It was, it, it's still very knee-jerk to me. I can remember going to burn, Burning Man, the two times I've been there is, uh, after the big burn on the Saturday night, on the Sunday night, they do the temple burn, which is a solemn, quiet event. But it's a very ritualistic thing, and that's the and that's the trouble with these things. Is once once they become on mass, they take on an ego of their own, and ego is the definition of ego is identification with form. I am a Muslim, I am an actor, I am a bricklayer, I am Republican, I am. It's making yourself better than others by saying, I am this, I am this, I am this, these are my attributes. When the sentence should end at, I am. Mm-hmm. Infinite and open. And, and that's what I like zeroed into what was disturbing me most about religion's faith in God is People are thinking of themselves not in a good way, just as special, but as better than everybody else. And that's the that's the cause for, you know, why Islam spread by fire and sword. They'd go to a place and say, either you convert, you offer us all of your men for soldiers, or keep your religion and we'll charge you an exorbitant tax. Mm. And then sort of Many years later, here in, in the States, like continued to study all of this stuff, went through this horrific breakup and, and knew that it was going to hurt like nobody's business. And I immediately, immediately got into all kinds of therapy, into past life regressions. I went to, I went and searched all these ashrams and, and all these kind of transcendental meditations and realized that there were so many parts of me that were hurting that felt like they were missing and was grasping now at what is going to heal me 
because I'm part of me is working so mechanically and so without connection. And you definitely hear in, in the West, and there's very, there's a new age trap you can fall into, but ended up at this, at this ashram in, in Napa, which is, belongs to this little Indian lady called Shrima, who is said to be born fully self-realized, meaning fully engaged in living in compassion and love. She couldn't tell compassionately. She couldn't tell the difference between herself, you, a rock, everything to her is, is one. She was said to be born having achieved that. So went up and there was no, no money involved and just like fed the fish and thatched their roofs and fixed some stuff and had many, many interesting conversations with the disciples there and their journeys that had led them to now work and live at this ashram. And finally met Ma and had a chat with her. And she she wasn't a guru at all. She was a little giggly, silly lady. And that won me over in a second. She's like, oh, you're an actor? What have you been in? It was just like, it, it, was, a, it was a completely normal person deeply connected but also presence without any artifice which she had no reason to prove anything and she was curious and lovely and she's she's like what's going on i'm like mom I'm hurting i'm not connected to anything and i feel a calling to this kind of work but i also there's no part of me that's going to sit and meditate up in a mountain and, and devote my life to this and she's like yeah that's crazy the whole thing about Life is that you have to have a foothold in both worlds, because as long as you have a body, you have a problem. You know, the most basic article of faith is that this is not all that we are. And she's like, that's what this is about, is, is keeping a foot in both worlds. And she's like, your one job is to find the thing you love. And with all of your heart, give yourself to that thing. And people around you will see you so elevated in peace, love, joy, wisdom, abundance, that they will aspire what is great in them to do. And that'll be your service. Be the best version of you. That's it. And that, I think, really, there's tears and tears and tears and really won me over. And she's like, she's like I think this thing you have about not feeling a connection to faith through these religions is because they're not big enough. They're not encompassing enough. The Carl Sagan quote is, to small creatures such as we, the vastness of the universe is only made bearable through love. And it's love for each other, affection for what you're doing and breaking down petty divides and all that. And she did say, she's like, listen, I see this coming this kind of work coming to the West. I see people like co-opting this new age spirituality and stuff. He's like, if anybody ever charges you money for this, that's the wrong thing. If anybody's running some positive transcendental meditation center, trying to, it's a pyramid scheme. Mm. She's like, don't fall for that. What you want and what will keep you connected with this discerning eye you have that can sometimes work against you is that faith or connection or whatever you want to call it is a very quiet, very personal thing. She's like, keep that 
as a little glowing thing for you. Don't feel the need to preach, teach, and whenever you see it, maybe back away from it. Because that too is ego. It's somebody saying, these are the steps to enlightenment. These are the steps to being this and something, something compassion. And we run into that every day in LA, whether it's at yoga studios or people actually pyramid scheming their intense retreat getaways or whatever they are. Mm. And that finally hit me is the connection. And that became the, the baseline of that Buddha story that we were working on is the discovery is that there's never enlightenment, that there's never, you're never on on the path and then stuck on the path. Things will fly at you all the time. And the only power you have is you choose basically the creator and the destroyer in you in equal parts always. The only power you have is to choose which one to be moment to moment to moment. And as I was doing this, also doing this past life thing, which which was cool because whether it's happening or not, it's a very creative gestalt. It's a therapy tool. You go deep in a very visual experience where you address a part of you that's hurting and just needs your love and attention. And for all the kooks out there and everything, like I was very wary of getting into this. This lady I worked with, the first thing she said to me, because I was talking about where people go and the lives they've had and how come everyone is a king or a warrior or a princess. It's like, what about the 5 million people who built the pyramids and the slaves who died or the drunk guy mm-hmm. who fell off the horse mm-hmm. who is them? She's like, all these things are cool. This is the one that matters, this life. Now, mm-hmm. so both my and this past life person it whittled down to whether there is more than us, whether there is another energy, whether... This fleeting little life that we have moment to moment, this is the important one right now. And it's who we're choosing to be moment to moment in this that's important. That's good, man. That's good. So when was this? How long ago was this? They sound like they were relatively close to each other, these experiences. And how long ago was it? This is now about 10 years ago. Okay. And it is obviously like, like it's ongoing, but like you said, the stuff will keep coming at you and there's, there's days that get really testy and clinical. And if anybody's being real, well, the moon is out of phase and, and I'm like, the moon's always full, just mm-hmm. so you know, it's always full. It's just our perception of it changes. Mm-hmm. And because I found myself doing that again, just because I was in a bad mood to somebody Somebody who's writing project that I was editing and helping them pitch, and she's very, very into astrology and the stars and the North Nodes and God knows what, and hadn't done the work she was supposed to do. And she's like, yeah, but this is out of phase. And I just exploded on her and let her have it with that sentence, like, the moon's always full. Get your shit together, hmm. do your work. And she cried and cried and cried. And it was another moment of noticing, be careful on how you impart these things and how you squash the magic in other people's lives. Like, what are they doing to hang on? What is bringing them solace? And why is it, why am I so eager to use, to browbeat them with facts? 
Wow, that's a great observation. The through line of all religions, no faith is, I think it's the ability to see your failings in others and recognizing them and feeling love for that rather than seeing the terrible reasons you shouldn't you shouldn't love each other. Oh man, that's great. So yes, that's been the journey into trying to find connections, trying to find purpose and relevance as it whittles down to to be cliche is here and now and be grateful for right now, right here, and that's it. And you know, in the Bible it says the kingdom of heaven is at hand means it's happening now. Yes. Heaven is right now. It's not a, we'll do this and this and this and ascend to it. Choose it and it's now. That's great, Bobber. And this is going to be where we're going to take our final break. Yes. So we'll be back with the last segment here in just a minute. Okay, thanks. By the way, God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com, and I'll put you on the list. All right, everyone, we're back with Bobber. It's our last segment, and I was so enthralled. I had such a warm, meditative experience listening to you talk about your journey with these two mentor figures for you that helped you get to this more contemporary stage of your spiritual evolution. We lost a big part of this chronology for you. You know, you were back in Pakistan at a, at 12 years old, and it sounds like around 12 or 13, you're kind of beginning to sense this part of you that, that doesn't mince words, that likes to confront, that doesn't like seeing hypocrisy and listening to it and seeing how that part of you can affect someone else, then that that young man finds his way back to England and then ultimately California. And so tell me more about that story and what what's important in that journey. Yeah, well, what was taking place in Pakistan is I was having such a tough time with, like you said, the hypocrisy and the narrow point of view. And there was such a lot of anger that was in many instances turning to violence at about 16 my mom was like listen you're gonna wind up dead or in jail and the only way (laughs) we have to get you out of here the only way you're gonna get out of here is if you get into college wow so really zeroed in on putting together whatever i had creatively in a portfolio at a very kind math teacher who for some reason, it, taking a liking to me, even though it's horrible as a subject, and I was a terror to be in, in class. And I think he enjoyed the questioning and the pushing of it. And after I was expelled from my last high school, he's like, listen, the only way you get into college is if you take the SAT, my after-school tuition center, I'll use that to do, to be your high school the SAT, you're going to have to study for yourself. And he helped me study for it and pass it. And I got my first student visa and left and then came back to England for a year and bartended and stuff. And it was, it was one of the most glorious times. I had broken the shackles in my mind. I, mm. I was out. My 
everything was a win. And that year in England was spectacular. And then finally on my way to college to the U.S. And uh, this lady from, I think from Omaha, is sitting next to me on the plane. Oh, crazy. Uh, and she's sitting in the aisle seat. And I tell her the whole story and wanting to come to America to work in the movies. And, and then I'm asleep and she wakes me up and says, look out the window. And I looked out and began to see this landmass. And she's like, that's the Eastern Seaboard. You're passing into the continental United States. Mm. I was just in tears. I couldn't believe it. And made it then finally got to LA, got to college, was in absolute awe of the exchange of ideas of people's lives and and all the met all the friends that we now have in common and and did our theater projects together and and then just before graduating it got to do Eclis in another play which got me my representation and then my first work visas and then things as you know like the time you've known me became quite challenging again like a bit of reality set in where where it was like yes in college you can play act you're supported and you can play act all these parts and these lands of your imagination and be anything you want. Once you're <laughs> going and auditioning, you're, you know, you're either the doctor or the terrorist. Mm. And, and then juggling that with every three years, having to renew this visa, and this is now just post 9-11, so restrictions are getting tighter. And I'd book a job, but then have to get a separate visa for that job. And from Pakistan, it takes longer to get it. And it turned out to, you know, losing almost a decade's worth of work and acting work. And I'm almost like, I can't resist bringing this up because I've, because uh, it's true, but I almost feel ashamed that I'm doing it. But the movie you booked, but it shot in Canada. Oh my God. It's yeah. the Day the Earth Stood Still remake. And right. All you right. booked the job as like the scientist, but you didn't have the ability to leave the country to work in Canada with your visa. Well, then, Nick, like, it was a dream scenario. It was one audition, went in that evening, casting director called me, she said, stay by your phone. I was like, okay. And, and uh, they called from the studio saying, you, you got it, book the job, go get a cocktail, we're flying you out tomorrow. Um, I couldn't find anyone. Anyway, I called a bunch of people, couldn't find everyone was in rehearsal or out or somewhere and went to the 4100 and had a drink with just the bartender. And <laughs> then, and then sort of, it, it was magic. It was the first time I'd been flown first class and because I'm going to be there for six months on this, on this huge movie. And we went in our first two days of rehearsals with Keanu Reeves and Jennifer Connelly. And it's like, I can't pinching myself right through me. Like, it's happening. It's everything's paid off. And then after those two days, they're like, man, we were shooting you tomorrow in our biggest scene with helicopters and God knows what. And they're like, we can't process your paperwork for two more weeks. Ugh. We're going to have to get a local hire and send you back. I mean, I was crushed hearing that story because I remember the frenzy of that moment trying to move mountains in a matter of minutes and hearing about you kind of the realization setting in that it wasn't going to work. And yeah. I think a story like this would crush so many people. <laughs> and I've always 
been impressed that it never seemed to crush you as much as I think it would have crushed me. But I don't know, you know, I, I don't know what else you want to say about that. I mean, it was a devastating moment. I think it really ties in. I'm so glad you brought the conversation back into this because chronology-wise, it really ties into, I was in a place of you can, with your intention, with your focus, with your actions, you can create your reality. Mm. And I was taking so many hits and it came back from this person who had found a kind of faith, but a faith in themselves, believing in yourself, you can create the world around you to, I can't believe this is going on. And then it be, and it became a more hardened version of that. You know, there is nothing. This is just, we're taking knocks. Mm. And we're floating, we're floating through through life, and then and, and then eventually, eventually got back into a wonderful acting class, into those sessions of therapy. Like when we started doing the Elephant Man, when you helped us, that became the next resurgence of belief or faith. And the faith was create your own reality. You know, new heaven and new earth. The new heaven being if you can created in your mind and in your envisioning, then the world around you will start changing. And that's what led to, that's, and at the same time that had that breakup happened, but that's what led to the searching into the ashrams and the other teachers and the other, it's like, what can heal this very cynical part of me that's taken over? which keeps, again, would never really goes away. It keeps rearing its head. It did recently, too, is with a partner and who had been in the kink community and kink world and polyamorous world and the sex positive thing. And that in itself is an incredibly difficult thing to navigate. But what we were talking about is it's also, and it's a wonderful world, but you can also get lost in it in the way we we're talking about ego, like saying I'm a Republican or I'm a this, You're like I'm into this kind of kink, I'm into this kind of thing. This is my trauma. This is mm. who I've become because of these things. And this is how I'm going to be. It's like all of everybody's feelings are valid. But the difference between children and adults is we as adults have to take responsibility for our feelings and not behave badly because of them. Mm. And that's what, again, like felt that rigidity come up when people are talking about, because in, again, in those communities, they're very into like paganism and rituals and very new agey stuff. And it's like so much of me is ready to easily tear them down logic wise and historically wise and like tell you where you're, this festival you're celebrating comes from and you'll feel like an idiot. But again, it's why that part of me so eager to scratch at people who found peace. Hmm. Oh, Barbara, this is great stuff, man. It's real fun to listen to you and to get to, to share this journey at, you know, I know a, a lot of these things, but some of them just cursorily and others not at all. And 
I so enjoy these opportunities to get to listen to people unfold their journeys in some semblance of totality. I mean, obviously we only have a short period of time, but it's, it's still, it's really lovely. There's, Nikki, there's one thing recently that happened that I think I'm quite, that I found very interesting. Tell me. Had a great pleasure of meeting a neurobiologist, a neuroscientist, and he had got to hold the human brain. Mm. And he's written a book that's against the thesis of it is that we should try not to be graceful because that's not what evolution is. And then he had in glass cases, like these brain, I think from he went from a snake to a lizard to a rabbit to an owl. And all of them is so like elegant and streamlined and each one is shaped the way that creature's primary function is. They look like little arrowheads almost. Hmm. The human brain is this big bubbling spaghetti pot. Hmm. It's all those things, but then it's bubbled over out of trial and error. And this book about letting go of grace and elegance is about make the mistakes. So something you said really, really resonated with me in terms of all of us on our journeys bumble and stumble through. And that's how we, I think that's how we get wiser, hopefully. And that's what evolution looks like, whether it's towards faith or connection or whatnot. All right, Barbara, comes come time for the final question. This is like becoming my breakfast question at the end. I love it so much. It's like so, on some levels, it's like this stereotypical softball-y kind of thing, but I just think it leads in these ways that I really enjoy. What makes you despair and what gives you hope? Goodness. I wasn't ready for that. No, no one is. <laughs> I'm not either, but I'm oh the one that gets God. to ask the question. <laughs> um, I, I mean, it's, it might be quite cheesy to say, like things that make me despair are what we were talking about in ego things. Each time somebody says, I am this, and makes some kind of edict right now, what we're seeing in the political scene all polarization, all the, uh, I'm different, so I'm better than you. It's the thing in the East that's made me despair the most is, and that's why I had all this stuff against religion is because they never take responsibility for, for their own inactions or poor judgment. They'll always blame other people. Mm. China screwed us over, America screwed us over, Iran screwed us over. They'll never say, like, maybe we should do a little better. Mm. Maybe we should educate our women better. Maybe we should, you know, stop stealing all the money countries give us and, and not doing anything with it. Yeah. People not taking responsibility makes me despair. And I think conversely, People having the bravery to take responsibility for their actions, good or bad, gives me great hope. 
Bobber, it has been a damn joy. What a joy. Oh, man. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. I hope I didn't blither my way right through. No, come on. These are, I adore these conversations when someone has so much to say about their journey. You're, you're striving to be present in your journey. And I admire that. And I'm striving too. And I really appreciate that not only that you did, but that you were enthusiastic to, to share your story with me here and with anybody listening. So thanks, man. I love you. Thank you. I love you, buddy. Thanks for making this platform for these conversations. I mean, again, going back into the discussion of ideas is so deeply needed right now rather than people speaking absolute truths. So thank you. No, oh, thanks, man. All right, don't go anywhere. I got to say goodbye to the show. All right, everybody. Thank you all for listening. Everything started to fall away as people, you know, get married and have kids. Our multiple meetups in the week really whittled down. And it, yeah, it came to you and I playing Halo on the couch. <laughs> having that, you know, if we got a day off in the week, we'd say, let's start early. Yes. So we can play until all these kids get home from school and, and, and kick our ass off. Yeah, no doubt, man. It'd be uh, burritos and capture the five. Yeah, the 15 year olds would destroy us. <laughs>